Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. For centuries, the fundamental mythology of American individualism has prevailed and has been deeply rooted in our culture. From the move westward, manifest destiny, and the Puritan ideology of self-reliance, it's all shaped what is represented, the American dream. The Horatio Alger story has perhaps more than any other story saturated every aspect of American life and culture. Today, this seems to be changing. Poll after poll shows that young Americans in record numbers are rejecting this, rejecting what had been thought of as the American dream. But why? What's changed? Has America changed? Has generational change been that dramatic? Has our society gotten so complex and interconnected that individualism is no longer a valid model? Have the values and talk of the 60s and the boomers finally after 60 years been absorbed into the culture? And if any of this is true, why is it not more profoundly reflected in our politics? We're going to talk about all of this today with my guest, Alyssa Court. Alyssa is the author of four previous books, including Squeezed and Branded. She is also the author of two books of poetry and most recently, Thoughts and Prayers. She's written for numerous publications and is the executive director of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. It is my pleasure to welcome Alyssa Court back to this program to talk about her newest work, Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. Alyssa, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here, Jeff. It's a delight to have you here. It does seem like when one talks about self-reliance and, and, and bootstrapping, as, as the title of your book implies, that somehow it is antithetical to what we've grown up with and to the fundamental American dream. Talk a little bit about that first. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I'd love to see some of these studies of young people abandoning the American dream that you brought up. I mean, that uh, I've seen some of that in my research. But so the original American dream, as it was coined in 1931, was a, a very inclusive one. It was a more, yeah, talk, talking about our American dream rather than my American dream. Right. And that's really important. And then over time, it's become this insistence that we achieve on our own or that we have achieved on our own if we're financially and professionally successful, that we don't depend on others for a whole slew of other things like child care, medical care, um, that basically we're utterly self-sufficient in our own families and in our own professional lives. And I, I've seen from my reporting that this is impossible for many, many Americans, this, this particular demand. Is it that America has changed or is it the nature of Americans that have changed? I think it's it's that they have so little mobility. I mean, they have so much less economic mobility than their parents and grandparents did. Just to, you know, there's been studies of this that you have a 50% chance of exceeding your parents financially if you're born in the 1980s. And that understanding, you know, you can see it in the young people in your life who can't uh, afford to own a home and can't afford to leave their parents' home sometimes, right? Um, and yet have, quote unquote, done everything right. Um, that there's going to be cynicism about this model because it, it hasn't worked for them. I mean, I'd argue it hasn't worked for most of us, but it's very explicitly not worked for them. Like the fact that they're they, they're not investing in the stock market, you know, they're not, uh, their careers aren't going in a straight line. You know, I, I called it in my book, Squeeze, my previous book, you know, 
the the narrative of their lives is, is, is just not making the same kind of sense that it might have made to their parents. Like they're working multiple jobs often. They can't pay uh, for emergencies for three months, three months of emergencies. So I think that is a kind of awakening for a certain um, young person or not even young, it's sort of young, quite, quite a young person. What are, you, what are you finding in terms of the way the parents of these young people look at the world today, the way they look at their children, the way they look at their opportunities today, all the things you've been talking about? How is that seen by their, their millennial or boomer parents? I mean, I could talk about my own um, experience as a parent here. Um, when I, you know, I look at my daughter and I, I, I worry, I worry about what what we're going to do for college, for debt, for what kind of professional life could she possibly have that would be solvent and satisfying and um, in any way kind of ethically satisfying in a climate, you know, climate that's on fire, right? So there's a lot of concerns for parents. And plus, so this generation, if it's children, if it's Gen Z and younger, is it that they've already survived this pandemic and what is going to be the legacy of that kind of anxiety, along with all these economic and environmental afflictions that they're going to be carrying with them. So I, I just I do think um, some of the collective actions that I've been seeing in what I reported in my book, I, I call it a new American dream, reflect people of my generation and a little younger being like, we've got to offer other kinds of ways of getting through this together that there's got to be uh, more collective action. And yes, the bigger collection and act, collective action is necessary, you know, uh, higher taxes for the Elon Musk of the world and 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 anybody in the top 10 percentile, but also just, you know, things like mutual aid or um, worker cooperatives or other models of survival that we think our children are probably going to need. How has corporate America begun to deal with this? One of the things you talk about is the way corporate America has tried to co-opt it in some ways. You can see it in advertising. I mean, there was a hilarious moment in um, the the Super Bowl when uh, Dolly Parton, uh, the wonderful Dolly Parton, had saying a version of kind of hustle hustling, you know, the hustle culture song. So she did nine to five work in five to nine, a whole new way to make a living, going to change your life, be your own boss and climb your own ladder. But if you look closely at what this like working class patron saint Dolly Parton was saying, what she was saying, you know, you got to grind working five to nine. In the, um, so uh, this is like uh, after your work day is over, you have the second day it was for, I think it was a site Squarespace, a web hosting platform. Like you're going to have your side hustle business and you'll be doing your extra work. So that was one uh, terrible example. You know, another was um, kind of at some point uh, there was T-shirts that would say things like nine to five is for the week. Uh, you, Brandy Melville, which is a brand that my daughter loves, is preteens wear, has all these Ayn Rand um, slogans on their clothes. They're big uh, libertarians and they're also like, you could, you know, don't be a weakling kind of thing. And I, this has been sort of interesting to me to see how this creeps into today's popular culture. And I compare it, of course, in the book to how it creeped into the popular culture of my youth, the little house on the prairie television show and so forth. 
And do you see any of this reflected in our politics today? I mean, there, there are moments of it, but there seems to be more of this attitude that we've been talking about, more of this change going on than we really see reflected in politics. Absolutely. I mean, this is is a huge change. There's a, an awareness of uh, housing insecurity that there's never been before. And of course, it was reflected during the pandemic by the eviction moratorium. But now that's over and you have people organizing saying, you know, we can't afford our rent, especially in these big cities, uh, doing amazing actions. I'm thinking also in Kansas City, there's a particularly re- remarkable um, uh, kind of housing justice group um, that has done great actions to try to get affordable housing for for people, including people who are homeless. And yeah, we haven't had uh, adjustments in our the cost of our housing or the growth of affordable housing that would make this 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 helpful for people. So I think we need to really rethink why and how we can take advantage of some of the things we learned during the pandemic. And that 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 is a big emphasis for me. I mean, I think we learned a lot about interdependence. Like, I don't know about you, but I I was very dependent on frontline workers. I was very dependent on my friends and my, the parents at my children's school in a way that I had never been before. And of course, on you know the idea of medical workers if I if I needed them and so forth. And and I think we need to keep that recognition. Yeah, you know, we got child tax credits. You know, we got there's an American Rescue Plan that that helped people out, and we need some of those supports on a regular basis. How much of that ethos that came out of the pandemic, exactly what you're talking about, how much of that do you think is still with us? Do you think it's hanging on? You know, I hope, I wish it were, I feel like there's an amnesia. I feel like there's a fear of the what we knew, know from the pandemic. And it's traumatic. People try to hide their memories of trauma, right? They, they try to bury them. We know this from people who fought in wars, right? Nobody wants to think about thing that took away their joy for years and their children's joy. But the things that gave us joy during the pandemic and gave us support, I think we need to remember them. I think we need to remember the kind of forgiveness that group uh, things like SNAP and Medicaid offered to people who were recipients during the pandemic. It made it much easier for people to receive aid that they needed. Um, I think it was much easier to organize amongst people around various you know needs in that time right people understood mutual aid you have to go help your neighbors so let's try to remember that and if we can even remember it each of us can remember it uh, as psychological beings and also as voters i think that would be good because for me you know um a lot of this is also about remembering to credit others rather than to just say you're doing it by yourself and i, I write about that at the end of my book like that was what all this research led me to, to think about the 25 people who went into making of the book that I'm talking about today, or the hundreds of people that go into the organization I run, the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, which is a you know, poverty reporting organization, or the people who've gone into making me who I am, my, my grandparents, um, my teacher, the writer Frank McCourt, uh, who wrote Angela's Ashes, who was a public high school teacher when I was 13 years old. So, you know, to think that way rather than to just think, you know, what have I accomplished? Has the complexity of society today, 
the interconnectedness because of technology, the complexity because of technology, has all of that in some way contributed, hopefully, to a greater understanding of the way that individuals are, are connected to each other? And, and it is inherently some kind of pushback to this notion of just the rugged individual. I think it cuts both ways, honestly, Jeff. I mean, I think we have, we have again, I, Elon Musk is on my mind as he always is on others because he insists we pay attention to him. But, 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 but you know, you can see with how he's manipulating Twitter or various, you know, other people have manipulated various platforms over time and scraped our information and minded and surveilled us in our workplace. You know, technology can actually be quite alienating, right? It doesn't always lead to us feeling more connected. Uh, it can also lead to us being exploited, right? Economically exploited and exploited in other ways. But I think things like those mutual aids that I was talking about or other sorts of groups that have sprung up, like Reddit groups um, after the Dobbs ruling, there are Reddit groups that were helping women get reproductive um, uh, needs that they had met that were volunteer groups at, that existed on, you know, on a platform, right? Um, and that that's what we can see more and more of, we can see people also, you know, organizing a kind of platform cooperativism, which is worker cooperatives that are entirely on worker owned apps. And again, that's not something that you could have had in the past. What that means, of course, is instead of taking a Lyft or an Uber, you might take something that's owned by the workers. So the workers don't get have to give a huge amount of the, the every fare to Lyft or Uber. So that, that kind of thing has been, um, flourishing in this period. At the same time, of course, we have these huge digital monopolies that are threatening to, you know, suffocate uh, democracy. So it's, it's a mixed, it's a mixed bag, I'd say. To what extent is there even an interest in politics anymore, given this, this shift that we're talking about, this sense of, of, collective in, of collective action by groups apart from traditional institutions? Well, yeah, so I've mentioned a few of them, but there's others. There's so many others, and that was part of what was so inspiring to me. There are people who are doing kind of peer counseling therapy, again, online, as you were pointing out, during the pandemic. They were helping other people who had survived terrible trauma, much of it uh, starting with economic you know, struggle, like poverty, coming from poverty, and they help each other. And that way they get around the difficulty of accessing therapists or other people who might help them and the, the high cost of such a thing. So that was one thing that was new to me. I call it inequality therapy. And then there's something else, uh, participatory budgeting, where people take part in their budget groups for their local government. And in hundreds of cities around the country, people are doing this. They're making judgments about millions of dollars a year in local spending, which I thought was, I didn't know about it either before I started reporting this. I was like, well, this is amazing. These are citizens who are becoming politically involved and engaged. And I mean, there, there are a bunch of other examples from my book and just that I've come across in the meanwhile, but there's there are reasons to be optimistic when you see some of these ways in which people are coming together. I mean, there, there are groups of parents during the pandemic who organized. They have groups like Strolling Thunder. I thought that was a great name. And they were sort of organizing to get more, uh, you know, money from the federal government, but also to support each other to get access when there was no daycare during the pandemic. And and now that there's very little daycare or a little affordable daycare. So yeah, it was another reason to be optimistic. 
does this new framework necessitate a rejection of the, the Horatio Alger story, a rejection of, of this, this Randian individualism? Or, or can the two coexist together in some way, I wonder? You know, I've been giving these events around the country, and one one person at a reading was like, I'm both self-made and interdependent. And I was like, okay, maybe that's true. So, I mean, yeah, I think, I, I don't think, personally, I don't think the Horatio Alger story can um, coexist because as I write about in the book, the Horatio Alger story is not what we think it is. And so I sort of blow the lid off the Horatio Alger story. Uh, <laughs> Horatio Alger was a pedophile and the Horatio Alger story was a story of older wealthy men rescuing teenager, teenage boys who were very handsome. So it was like a very weird story. It wasn't actually what it's come to mean. I mean, uh, Trump calls himself a Horatio Alger uh, story and his father, he called Fred Trump a Horatio Alger story. And uh, Clarence Thomas considers himself a Horatio Alger story. Reagan thought he was a Horatio Alger story. But I think if we know what Horatio Alger story means, it does. It means you're basically aided by somebody very wealthy, a great deal older than you. So that's not really, <laughs> it can't coexist really with, right. with what we're talking about. But um, and, I guess, I guess Rand, it's the Horatio Alger myth, not the, the myth, actual yeah, story. This, yeah, right. so the Horatio Alger myth, can it coexist? Well, I mean, I think being successful and having mastery and working really hard can definitely coexist with be working together and crediting people at you know constantly for your own success and and involving groups of people uh, in your work and in your in your life and in your um, in your really basic needs involving other people in them. Um, I think that can definitely exist with being. Uh, an achiever. I think the myth itself is a lie. So that's so that to me is not needs to be dispelled, and it's done a great deal of damage. I mean, you have candidates like Donald Trump walking around saying they're self-made men, um, and getting a lot of traction with voters because of that. And you, we have some of the wealthiest people in this country claiming to be self-made. Usually, that's it's not even the case. But let's say it was. I, I don't think it it needs to be as important a consideration. In fact, I think it's kind of alienating um, because there are a lot of people who, you know, are just getting by and that's okay. I mean, that's not okay politically and psychologically, but that's okay morally. Like there's nothing wrong with being a working class person, you know, who hasn't actually made it, so to speak, you know. To what extent do you think that the, the inequality, the extreme inequality that we see in the country today is is really providing fuel to this change we're talking about? I think it, it definitely is. I mean, you, in 2021, CEOs were paid 399 times as much as typical workers. And they made on average 15.6 million in 2021. So I think how can you be one of the fewer than half of American adults that say they have enough emergency funds to cover three months of expenses and look at that and not be angry or feel that there's something kind of wrong. And, you know, part of my point with this book was we have to go back into the past to get to the future. And the way we do that is we look at some of the social programs that did help people. First of all, there was great unionism in the early part of the 20th century, and that was very helpful at keeping people's wages up and, you know, protecting their workplaces. And also just creating a feeling of solidarity among workers, right? They didn't feel alone. We could go back into the Homestead Act of 1862, where there was the biggest land giveaway in American history. And that was 
millions of acres of land in the West given away for free. So that we've had a history of social generosity. We had the GI Bill uh, that kind of created a thriving American middle class. And we need to remember those earlier moments, too, when we go forward. I guess one of the things that we also have to think about is the way in which going back and looking at these successful programs from the past can be not recycled necessarily today, but but modernized today, that, that the framework of those programs, the reason for, to, for being for those programs can, can be certainly valid today, but that there needs to be a more modern version of those as opposed to just trying to pull those back from the past. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think the modern version, some of them were actually from the Biden administration. I mean, we had American, you know, rescue, as I mentioned, and also um, the child tax credit. And we could extend some of these things, right? They exist. I, people have mocked UBI, universal basic income, but I've all long argued that we need that for parents, that that the child tax credit in a sense is UBI, right? It's it's giving parents additional funds a month because we don't have daycare. We have the some of the lowest amount of our overall GDP going to daycare and childcare for, for families. And that's actually, it doesn't make economic sense because then you have workers, female workers who are unable to do their jobs, who have to stay furloughed or what have you after the pandemic. And I think that to me is a modern version. Like let's have, continue to, to have support, economic support for parents of children, young children. Talk about what you see around the world, other models, other countries that are that are doing some of these things, some successfully, some not quite as successfully. Yeah, I mean, I I was struck by, first of all, so I talk about volunteerism a lot in my book, you know, people who volunteer, like that's part of this, this economy, this alternative, you know, solidarity world, right, where everybody's taking care of each other, but they're doing it for free, right? And that it's not entirely good because I think the most important thing is that we also give a handout as well as a hand up, right? That if it's just a thousand points of light, as George Bush said, then we're depending on people who are already overextended, ordinary citizens, to take up the slack that should also be the job of our government. So when I looked at internationally, I saw that people at some of the countries that had the best social safety net um, New Zealand, so forth, you know, they actually had the highest levels of volunteerism. So you could have a country which, like ours, is very, you know, generous and thinks about their neighbor. And, you know, I think that's the way a lot of Americans see themselves. Um, and you can also, you know, get support from your government that it's the it, they're not separate things. And that was insight for me. I mean, I guess part of it is that, that we have to find a new American dream, that it's not so much an American dream that, that needs to go away, but we have to find a new one. Yeah, absolutely. Or as I said, also return to the old one. <laughs> so there's like two, two movements that can take place, like go back to the one from 1931 and go forward to the future to the new American dream that would include, as you were saying, you know, technological um levels of togetherness that, and kind of freedoms like the cooperatives online that I mentioned, or go to the go to a future that uh, has an understanding of women's uh, women and uh, parents, mothers needs uh, as workers, which 
wasn't like a the strong point of, of the 19th century, right, or the early 20th century, but that includes these groups that have been left out of other moments of generosity, right? I mean, I talked about the GI Bill, but it didn't offer the same help for Black veterans that it did for white veterans. But so the, any of these programs going forward would obviously be correcting some of that as well. I guess the, the other part of it, too, is to, to find a way in which it can also be a solution to the polarization that we see today, because that's really stands in the way of so much of it. Yeah, it could be a solution to the polarization. Uh, unfortunately, I do think some of what has to happen is has to happen on the level of opinion, though, because you still have, um, you know, studies, recent studies where 42 percent of Republicans said that the poor are that way because they have not worked as hard as most others. Another one said that uh, Republicans believe people get stuck in poverty because they make bad decisions or lack the ambition to do better in life. So we need to sort of have a hearts and minds campaign as well which is part of why I really think we need to dedicate ourselves to puncturing the self-made myth and all the kind of falsehoods around that, as well as building something new. So that's we also need to run candidates who are willing to say things like Maxwell Alejandro Frost did. He's a representative from Florida, and he came out and said, I can't afford to pay my rent in D.C. I'm going to sleep on my friend's couches. And he got attacked for that. But to me, that was very salutary. It's like, you say this, you're like most Americans, you can't pay, you know, thousands of dollars of rent off the off the bat, you know, and you're you're explaining why and you're relying on others in the meanwhile, and you're, you're, and he actually said to Republicans who mocked him, you know, I don't fall for this bootstrap stuff. So I think we need more candidates, you know, and elected officials who are willing to say things like this. Alyssa Court, her book is Bootstrapped, liberating ourselves from the American dream. Alyssa, I thank you so very much for spending time with us today. Oh, you're welcome. It was great. Thank you.